This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court has ruled that the government can indefinitely detain certain immigrants who re-enter the country illegally and say they'll face persecution or torture if they're deported to their native countries. In a 6-3 decision down ideological lines, the court held that the immigrants are not entitled to a hearing about whether they should be released while their cases work their way through the system. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, who are the immigrants this decision concerns? Well, the group is actually small in terms of writ large, the amount of people that come to the border. But in a border search situation, could end up being actually a significant number of people. And that's because it's the group of people who have been deported any time in the past and who seek to come back and re-enter the United States after they've been ordered deported and ask for not asylum because they're not eligible for asylum, but basically a relief from a second deportation called withholding of removal that says that the country that they're a citizen from is so dangerous that they will be persecuted there. So why aren't they eligible for asylum? Well, what happens is you're only eligible for asylum, which is a specific type of relief that actually gives you a path to citizenship in the United States, if you apply for it when you first enter the United States and are not ordered deported. But if you've been ordered deported previously and tried to re-enter illegally and are apprehended re-entering illegally, then you're not eligible for asylum. You're only eligible for something called withholding of removal, which serves the same purpose as asylum in essence, which is that you don't get deported to the country you're afraid of being deported to, but does not give you a path to citizenship. You're only in America in flux until such time as the crisis in your country is over. Now, for some people, that ends up being the rest of their lives, but other people could be removed if the situation changes in their country. All right, so tell us about the majority opinion. So this case is a difficult case because it's a case about when someone goes through this process of re-entering the United States, are they allowed to have bonds? Meaning, do they have to stay in detention during the whole time that they're asking for this withholding of removal relief? Or will they be, you know, will they be able to ask for bond and be released on conditions of release? Or could they be detained for up to one year or two years while they're asking for relief? And so all of the administrations, including the Biden administration, so you have Obama, you have Trump, and you have Biden, have said that in this group, of people who is re-entering the United States, they're subject to detention under a statute that says when we're trying to deport a person who's already been ordered deported, we are allowed to detain them without bond. That's been the position of the last three administrations. The litigants' position, the, the, the non-citizens said, No, what we're subject to is a detention provision that applies to people who are going through brand new proceedings, because that's what we're going through is brand new proceedings when we've re-entered. And in those brand new proceedings, you're allowed to apply for bonds. So there had been a circuit split. Some circuits had said the provision that 
applies to people who've already been deported is what applies. And other people said, no, this is a new proceeding. So uh, the conservative justices of the Supreme Court, so six, so the six to three decision, ruled that, in fact, the Obama-Trump-Biden position was correct and that the detention statute that applies to people who have already been ordered deported applies to this group that re-enters after they've been deported, such that they can be detained for the entirety of these proceedings, even if they take one year or two years, they can be detained without bond in an immigration detention facility until these proceedings have been adjudicated. So Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion, said basically the question isn't whether they can be deported, but where they'll be deported to. Is that true? They're all going to be deported? Yes. And in fact, this is an argument that the dissenting opinions of the three liberal justices, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, don't even address because they know it's a difficult argument, and that's why they didn't address it. When a person re-enters the United States after being ordered deported, they're asking for withholding of removal from the country they're a citizen of. So let's say you're from El Salvador. You're saying, please don't deport me back to El Salvador because I'm going to be persecuted there. That does not limit, under U.S. immigration law, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Division from deporting that individual to Mexico or to Sweden or to Ghana. It's just a matter of whether any of those countries will actually accept this human being, which is very, very rare. And the court talks about it only happens in 1% of withholding of removal cases. Well, then usually what happens in those cases is those are people we really want out of the United States because they're very dangerous and we don't want them walking around. And so what we do is we basically make some diplomatic deals where we say, if you want something from us, what is it that you want? And if we give it to you, will you take X, Y, Z people? And so the United States makes these diplomatic deals and we remove certain people. And so Justice Alito's point is, we're not having a debate about whether the person is going to avoid deportation because the person can be deported at any moment if you find a country that's not going to persecute them. So the fact that they're just trying to evade deportation to one specific country doesn't make this a brand new proceeding. It's just an ancillary proceeding happening after the fact to just avoid deportation to a specific country. But they can't avoid deportation writ large and stay in the United States. And so for that reason is why he says that the statute that applies to people who have already been ordered deported and says that those people can be detained without bond while we're trying to execute their removal order is what applies here. Justice Breyer wrote the dissenting opinion for the three liberal justices. What was his reasoning? His reasoning was based much more on, and rightly so, the facts of what's actually going on here and Congress's knowledge of the facts that are going on rather than maybe the actual text of the statute and saying Congress clunkily wrote this text because at the end of the day, they would never have wanted people to be detained for two years while these things are being decided. And they knew that withholding of removal is a type of relief that is very, very, very rarely uh, thwarted by a third country deportation, meaning 
they knew that withholding of removal was basically a new immigration proceeding where you're going and, and you're deciding again whether the person can be deported because if they win, they're going to be able to stay as a matter of practice. Nobody's actually going to send them to Sweden or France or Australia or any of that. And so because they knew the practical efforts of this, you should interpret the statute in light of that practical knowledge of how the immigration system works and say that they meant that this was a new hearing and because it was a new hearing, that person can be eligible for bond. And so, I mean, this makes a big difference because at the end of the day, if you're eligible for bond, then there are a lot less disincentives for returning to the United States if you've been deported. Because the idea is that you can return and make a prima facie claim that you're going to be persecuted in your country and you can get bond then the idea is maybe more people will be willing to take that risk than people who know, no, if I get caught, I'm going to be detained for one year or two years. And if I lose, what will have been the point of all of this? So the idea is the reason you've seen the Biden administration stay with the Trump administration, stay with the Obama administration's position, is they don't want people who have been deported already coming back into the United States thinking there's a calculus where they will be able to get bonded into the United States and be able to return and just walk around. They wanted to say, look, if you're a legitimate refugee who is worried about death, then being in a detention facility while your claim is pending, as horrible as it is, is still preferable to death, so you will come. But if you're not a legitimate refugee, and you're not actually facing death upon removal, then it is less likely you will be willingly give up your freedom in exchange for a very small chance to remain in the United States. And so that's why you've seen all three administrations take this position. So is it basically a textualist reading by the majority and a practical interpretation by the dissent? Yes, that's basically what it comes down to. If you've seen this this term, where sometimes the textual reading helps the non-citizens, and sometimes it hurts the non-citizens, and here, the textualist reading, if somebody's being honest about it, hurts the non-citizens because there's no way you can say that there isn't a removal order that exists for someone who's re-entering the country after they've been ordered removed. That removal order does exist, and it can be executed to 199 countries, but maybe just the one that the person doesn't want it executed to. So even if it's practically true that it won't be executed for with a 99% probability as to any of those other countries, because none of those other countries want this person and they won't give them a passport to enter, it is still theoretically possible. And so as a matter of textualist interpretation, there's no way you can say that there's a new proceeding that is to decide whether someone is going to be ordered removed, which is what the liberal argument requires you to say. And so that's why I think probably as a matter of textualist interpretation, the majority opinion is correct. So now we've discussed before the last three decisions in immigration cases were unanimous. This is six to three down ideological lines. What made the difference here, do you think? 
The difference is this is a case which is interpreted by an administration that is trying to have a draconian path on immigration will lead to some pretty harsh outcomes, meaning you could have people in detention for quite a long time and just lock them up and throw away the key while their case is pending. And if these cases take forever, then people will just know, I'm just going to be locked up forever if I try to come into the United States. And so you have the three liberal justices saying, we don't want to sign on to that. That sounds repugnant to us. But I think the solution to that will be to allow what are called as applied challenges, which you can say, look, maybe this statute reads the way it is, but there should be no statute in the United States that allows me to stay longer than a year in immigration detention, because this is not criminal detention. I haven't committed a crime. I'm just sitting here in immigration detention and the government is taking too long to do my case. And so that's what this will now lead to is what are called as applied challenges where there's an individual whose case is taking too long. They will then file a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the U.S. District Court saying my case is taking too long. It's unconstitutional to hold me this long. And that will be an issue if the administration is holding people that long. I don't think the Biden administration will hold people that long, but if there's some new administration, you'll see those kinds of cases arising. Now, I've read that the number of imprisoned asylum seekers has jumped exponentially under the Biden administration, that it doubled from 14,000 early in the year to 27,000 in June. Why so? Because what has happened is people think of the immigration border issue as an issue of just Mexico and Central America. But that's actually not true. We have a much more fluid and dynamic border than we've ever had before. And so what happens is if people think that there's an entry route into the United States through the southern border, you start to see people from all over the world show up at your southern border. You don't just see people from Mexico and Central America. And so what happens is as more of these people who are from all over the world show up at the southern border, Mexico doesn't just let you return them to Mexico because they're not Mexican. So it doesn't work that way. You can't send someone from Cuba or Ecuador, which are two of the big, big sending countries right now. But there's others. There's Venezuela, Colombia. There's a lot of places. There's people from a lot of places coming to the southern border. Mexico says, well, these people aren't Mexican. Why do you think you can send them back here? And so they have to be detained in our facilities until we can actually process their deportation to the actual country they're a citizen of. And so that's what's leading to this massive increase and spike in detention at the immigration and customs facilities. I found this interesting. There's disagreement about the term used for illegal immigrants. Justice Alito in the majority and Justice Thomas in a concurrence used the term alien, but Justice Breyer in the dissent used the term non-citizen. And apparently the Solicitor General is using the term non-citizen recently as well. Is it just a question of sort of being politically correct or is there a difference? 
is a huge problem because the immigration code, so the actual text of the statute, uses the word alien. So it doesn't use any other word. And it says an alien is a person who is neither a citizen or a national of the United States. And so what's weird is we have these two categories of people in the United States. We have citizens and we have nationals. And so most people that we think of with U.S. passports are citizens, but there are some people who are U.S. nationals. And those are people like from American Samoa and from the Swains Island and stuff like that who are not actually U.S. citizens, but they owe an allegiance to the United States. They're U.S. nationals, it's called. And so the reason that's complicated is when the politically correct term non-citizen is applied, you can be a U.S. national and not actually be a citizen. So the term non-citizen is actually imprecise. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. The Supreme Court ruled that California was violating the Constitution with a decades-old regulation that gives union organizers access to agricultural company land for part of the year to talk to workers. A 1975 provision that grew out of the efforts of Cesar Chavez to give farm workers collective bargaining rights. The 6-3 vote down ideological lines is the latest blow to unions. In the majority opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts concluded the California regulation unconstitutionally interferes with the growers' property rights and a provision in the Constitution that prohibits governments from taking private property without just compensation. Joining me is Bethany Berger, a professor at the University of Connecticut School of Law. How much of a blow is this decision for unions? So this is a blow for California migrant farm workers. As far as I know, no other state has a statute or regulation like this for protecting migrant farm workers. For unions, this shows that the majority on the Supreme Court just doesn't like unions. But unions that are not farm worker unions are protected by the National Labor Relations Act which gives access to employer property when there is no effective way to reach employees off the property. So its effect on unions generally might be relatively confined. So explain the majority's reasoning here. So the majority said, well, the first part of the opinion says that whenever the government authorizes an involuntary entry into property, that is a taking. And the only question is what compensation is due. But that new per se rule is, as the court said in another case, only a per se rule for a few pages in the U.S. report. Because the court immediately includes a lot of exceptions to that per se rule of invasions that will not be taken. So what this leaves for lower courts, for regulators, for just individuals, is a tough process of trying to figure out when those exceptions apply or not. Did Chief Justice John Roberts veer from precedent? I've been reading that he's rewriting the takings clause. That's correct. Yeah. So the Majority claims to rely on precedent, but what in fact it does is it takes isolated phrases out of context and twists them into something that they never said. 
and in fact, twist them sometimes into the opposite of what the decision said. So, for example, the court says that a government authorization of a right to enter is a per se tanking. And it distinguishes the Pruneyard decision from 1980 about right to speak at malls by saying that was only because the property was open to the public. But Pruneyard said, this is a taking of the right to exclude, but not all takings of rights to exclude are takings under the Constitution. So that's the opposite of what the court held in Cedar Point. Similarly, there are a number of cases that hold that physical invasions are takings from the Supreme Court, but they only do so after they find that the invasion significantly undermined the owner's economic interest. And indeed, those cases sometimes said not every invasion is going to be a taking. And in this case, Cedar Point made no allegation that there was any invasion of its economic interest. So it's inconsistent with those decisions as well. Just explain what the takings clause is. The takings clause says that the government cannot authorize a taking of private property for public use without just compensation. So if the government takes property in the constitutional sense, it has to pay for it. But there are some cases where that's easy to apply. Taking somebody's house, saying that somebody's land is going to be taken for a road. Those are easy cases. The hard cases are when the government doesn't permanently physically take anything. And in those cases, the court has applied kind of a balancing test. Say, why are they doing it? Is there much of an impact on the owner's interest? And in a lot of cases says, there isn't a taking. That's what the Supreme Court changed in Cedar Point. What does it tell you that this is a six to three decision? So what this means to me is that the conservative majority on the Supreme Court is willing to expand private property rights even when it violates precedent. And that may be very significant for the takings clause. For almost a century, takings decisions have generally been split decisions, been five, four decisions with one justice or the other going back and forth. If this continues, that's no longer the case. Talking about the union aspect of this, there have been several decisions from this court eroding union power, including one that overturned a 40-year-old precedent, the Janus case. They've all been five to four as well, or now six to three. I don't even know if the union has unions have won any cases at the Supreme Court in recent memory. I think people watching the Supreme Court recognize that this is a Supreme Court that is not friendly to unions. The Janus case is the biggest example, but this adds to that list. And now explain what the liberals said in dissent. So one of the points of the liberals, I think, is kind of wrong. One of them was to say, this is just a regulation, not a physical invasion. And that is based on 
a past decision, but the distinction really doesn't make sense. The other points are more accurate. First, this case is inconsistent with past precedent. The Supreme Court has never said that a temporary invasion that doesn't cause any economic harm is a taking, certainly not a per se taking. In fact, it said the opposite. The second point is that these exceptions create a lot of uncertainty and they may, if interpreted in a certain way, in fact, threaten lots of health and safety regulations. The third point is that it's not clear what this decision actually does, even for the regulation at issue. So the takings clause says, if you take property, you have to pay. But what do you have to pay? You have to pay the fair market value of what's been taken. And here, from everything that was presented below, the fair market value appears to be zero. There wasn't any evidence that this economically harmed the growers. So the Supreme Court held something like this with respect to interest on accounts where the interest would be so small that it wouldn't even make economic sense to collect it. And in that case, it had to go back in another decision and say, well, you know what, since the fair market value of this is effectively zero, you don't even have to bother to go through the takings analysis here. Just say, yeah, it's a taking, but you don't have to pay for it. And so something like that might happen here. What Justice Breyer said was, if the government wants to do something like this, they could do the economic analysis and say, we're going to give you $1 in nominal damages for this invasion. You come back and show us that the fair market value of it was more. So that's another possibility. During the oral arguments, Justice Barrett said it could be as little as $50. I don't know where she got that figure from. So do you think that the next step is then determining compensation? So the case goes back down to determine what compensation would be. What is the fair market value here? And it might be $1 nominal damages. That's something that happened in the Supreme Court's first per se physical invasion case in 1980, where they said even saying that somebody can put a cable box on your roof that you don't see that doesn't undermine the value of your property, that is a per se taking. And it went back down to the state of New York and New York said, okay, it's a taking, you get $1 because it doesn't undermine the value of your property. So that could happen here. So then if you look at that, the compensation could be very little, and you look at the fact that the NLRB controls elsewhere, it seems like this is more a defeat in name that it won't have that much impact. Well, no, it does have a very big impact on every other area of property law and regulation. So now, potentially, any time that the law says that individuals can enter somebody else's land without permission, there's a possible claim that that is a taking. And it has to be determined whether it comes within one of those three exceptions or if not, what the compensation would be. Tell us what the three exceptions are. So the three exceptions are, first, if it's not a trespass. And 
because trespass is a common law doctrine that's not all that clear what that means. Second, if the right to enter is part of the longstanding principles of property law, and there are tons of rights to enter that have been recognized for hundreds of years, and new ones have been added. So if it comes within one of those, then it's an exception to this. Third, the court said that the government can require entry to property as a condition of receiving certain benefits. And they said that all health and safety exceptions should come within that. But there is some scrutiny about whether the entry is sufficiently connected to the harm that suggests that's not as easy as an exception as the court said. So determining the scope of the exceptions is going to be up in the first place to lower courts and regulators, but it will eventually get to the Supreme Court. So if the Supreme Court keeps the composition that it has and the preferences that the six justices in the majority have, then those exceptions are going to get narrowed. The Pacific Legal Foundation is 13 and 2 at the Supreme Court. So does that show that property rights win at the Supreme Court most of the time? Well, so it depends how you define property rights. So I would say that property rights include the right of the government to protect everybody's interest in property, in safe working conditions, and so on. So it's a particular vision of property rights that favors favors certain people and doesn't favor other interests. Thanks, Bethany. That's Bethany Berger of the University of Connecticut School of Law. I'm June Guasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.